Jesus True and Better. That is the name of this study and the point of everything the author of Hebrews is writing. Throughout the book, the author is comparing a lesser thing to Jesus to show how great he truly is. Each argument builds upon the last. Each chapter is a new piece in the puzzle of Hebrews, showing us a fuller picture of how Jesus is superior. He is not only the true Messiah, but the best in every way. In the last session, Joy talked to us about how Jesus is better than angels. As you studied this week, did you find a new comparison, a new way that Jesus is better? Before we go any further, if we haven't met before, my name is Jillian Vincent, and I will be leading us to this new comparison that we see in our session this week, starting at Hebrews 2 and working our way through chapter 3, verse 6. When I think about these comparisons, I think about Legoland. Yes, Legoland, because this past spring break, me and my family traveled to San Diego, California, and we had to visit Legoland because truly what is better to three boys than a whole theme park full of Legos? I remember one particularly amazing place in Legoland was this area full of huge replicas of real cities around the world. There was Paris, France, there was New York City, there was Washington, D.C., and here we saw all of these structures in these cities created entirely from Legos. But as I was looking at these Lego structures, I was reminded of Hebrews because as amazing as these Lego structures were, I mean, truly the artistry and perseverance it took to create them were incredible. But they weren't quite the same as standing in front of the real Eiffel Tower in Paris, France, or the real Washington Memorial in Washington, D.C., or the real Statue of Liberty in New York City. Just like all of these comparisons we see in the book of Hebrews, these entities, these angels, these people aren't the same as the true and better, Jesus himself. So hang on to that thought as we add each new comparison. Jesus is true and better. Today, as we work through this section, we are going to break it down into three distinct parts. First, we're gonna talk about the warning message we see in chapter two, verses one through four. Then we're gonna talk about Jesus being the founder of salvation in chapter two, verse five through 18. And lastly, we're gonna talk about how Jesus is greater than Moses in chapter three, verse one through six. Before we get started, Let's go ahead and pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O rock, my, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Father, open our eyes to the wondrous things in your word. We pray this in your name, amen. Okay, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter two, and we're gonna start reading in verse one. 
Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. While there are several warnings in the book of Hebrews, this is the first and the only one we will cover in this section, but just know there are more coming. Let's slow down through this one and make sure we really understand what is being said here. First of all, what is the warning? The author says to pay attention to, don't neglect, don't drift away from such a great salvation. Next question would be, what is such a great salvation? This is the good news, the gospel, that salvation that is offered to us in Christ. Very simply that Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross and rose again, defeating death and calling us into new life. For short, we're just gonna call it new life in Christ for now, but stay tuned because as we move through this session, we're gonna talk more in depth about this great salvation. What is the consequence listed for neglecting it? Well, here the author puts this in the form of a question. They say, how will we escape? Don't you love it when they do this? Instead of saying, you will not escape or they will not escape, they form it into a question leading you to come to the same conclusion the author has come to on your own. So the author phrases this, how will we escape? Which brings up another question, escape what? I believe here he is talking about, or he or she, we don't know, talking about the penalty for our sins, the just judgment we deserve. Like those under the old covenant, there are consequences for sin, the greatest and most grievous being separation from God. When we sin, we choose that separation from a God who is continually drawn near to us. In addition, the penalty is death of which we are all deserving because all of us sin. There are two verses in Romans that really hit this hard. Romans 3, 10 through 11, there's no one righteous, not one. And Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that free gift of God is this salvation that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. So last question would be, why should I believe it? Well, there is so much evidence for it. Here the author is building a case for you, the reader, and for the original audience. And in every court case, the amount of evidence proportionally adds strength to the argument. So less evidence, less strength, more evidence, more strength. Anybody who watches Law and Order knows this well. And the Hebrews author is saying this argument could not be stronger. There is so much evidence that Jesus brought this salvation and new way when he ushered in the new covenant. 
Here's when I annotated, I made a list of this evidence in, in Hebrews 2. It says that this salvation was declared by God. It was declared by angels and many witnesses proved it was reliable. That is in the phrase by those who heard. The Old Testament law required witnesses for any testimony to be proven reliable and valid. And they required not just one witness, but at least two or three. If you think about the witnesses here, the author of Hebrews is talking about, they would be the disciples and followers of Jesus. And there were many, many, many who testified in that witness. So way far past, are surpassing the two or three witnesses that were required under this law. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles. Just read the gospels to see all of those that Jesus performed here in his earthly ministry. And then there are the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which were displayed in the apostles. But get this, they are still displayed in us today. So this evidence is still ever growing. We are a part of it as the gifts of the Holy Spirit are on display in our lives. Bottom line, there's a lot of evidence. So how do we heed this warning? How do we pay attention to it? While the evidence is so abundant and solid, you really have to make a decision about it. You really can't ignore it. It's staring you in the face. Either you choose to close your eyes to the evidence or you let yourself see fully the truth right in front of you. Let's think about the original audience. How would they have been tempted to neglect it? If this really was such a great salvation, if they've been waiting for this Messiah for so long, why wouldn't they want to accept this salvation? This is just my two cents, but I believe it was because it was new and unknown and came with unexpected challenges. I believe this because I find myself clinging to old ways of life, even toxic ways of life, because they feel safer to me, because I know them, they are familiar, but they are not what is best for me, what the Lord has designed for me. And this is not a huge leap in logic when it comes to the Israelites because they've done this before. They even complained to Moses that they would rather go back to slavery in Egypt than face the new and unknown challenges that came with their freedom. They were relying on their own strength, not having faith in God for their present and future circumstances. I believe the temptation to cling to what is old and known was overwhelming to this audience. Think about it. They had spent likely their whole lives following the Old Testament, Old Covenant ways of law and system of sacrifices for their atonement. This new covenant life was completely, radically different than what they had ever known. Not only that, but though they experienced the salvation of Christ, they were met with suffering and persecution. They were free spiritually, but experiencing challenges externally for their faith all the time. Simply put, this was way harder than they thought it was gonna be, and it was stretching to their faith. Have you ever felt that way? I have. 
just a personal example, I have not lived with a scale for years now. A huge part of my testimony was that the Lord saved me from an eating disorder. And although God saved my life, I still felt myself clinging to that old way. I would weigh myself every day, sometimes multiple day, times a day, and it took years of healing in Christ to realize that that was me clinging to my old life. But it felt safer. I felt like I needed to know. But then as God grew my confidence in him, I realized that if that was not the way that God judged me, it should not be the way I judged myself. And by God's grace, my scale started to break. And when it did, I felt the Lord say, Jillian, do not replace it. Throw it in the trash. Do not go back to that yoke of slavery. This is but a small example from my own life. God continues to do this, to call me to pay attention and embrace my salvation in him in every area of my life. Here, they are called to let go of the old covenant and embrace the new. The gospel says they are no longer judged by their ability to uphold the old law and old sacrificial system. They are judged by the perfect sacrifice of Christ. They can let go of the old way for the new one. They can let go of their old scale because God has put the measuring stick up to Christ and not up to them. It's really good news. It's worth paying attention to. So let's boil that down to our main truth for this section. Don't neglect the solid, abundant evidence. Believe and embrace Christ's salvation. Don't neglect the solid, abundant evidence. Believe and embrace Christ's salvation. I think it's worth asking here, where are you at when you look upon the evidence? Do you believe? Maybe you have taken that first, maybe you've never taken that first step of faith to look at the evidence and say, yes, I believe in you, Jesus and I'm going to trust in you to be my salvation. I wanna invite you to do that today, if you have not already. But we can't stop with believing. We have to embrace it in every area of our life. So the next question is, if you have believed, how does that show up in your everyday life? And especially when you embrace challenges. Maybe you believe in your head, but like me, your heart is still clinging to the old scales in your life. Today is the day to not neglect, but embrace Christ's salvation for you by throwing out the old ways and embracing his new life for us. That brings us to our next section, the founder of salvation. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter two. And this is a long section. We're gonna start in verse and go all the way through verse 18. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear and of death were subject to lifelong slavery." For surely it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Whew, that is a whole lot packed into 13 verses. It is a very spiritually and theologically dense section of scripture. Sometimes when you get to a section of scripture like this, it is helpful to follow somewhat of an hourglass strategy in trying to understand further. Zoom out and get the general idea of what it's saying. Then zoom in and get into some of those details, working through some of those tools you are learning. And then zoom back out to summarize again what you feel God is saying to us. So if I had to start at the top of that hourglass, distill this down to the absolute simplest summary or paraphrase, it would be this. God cares about us. So Jesus was made low to help us. God cares about us. The author here starts by quoting Psalm 8, 4 through 6, a Davidic psalm absolutely praising God for his utter majesty. In this psalm, David is flabbergasted that in light of God's utter glory, he cares about humans and gives them an opportunity to share in the care of his brilliant creation. This psalm also references the Son of Man, which Jesus often called himself. By quoting this here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, this happened. Jesus fulfilled this because miraculously God cares about us. So he made a plan for our salvation, knowing our great need for a savior. So in his grace, he made his son low to taste death for us and suffer on our behalf. There's a lot of talk of he in Hebrews, and we actually have to skip to chapter 2, verse 9, to know who the he is. The ESV says, namely, Jesus. This is the first time he is explicitly named in Hebrews. It is a big moment. We are naming names. It is Jesus. 
Let's pay attention to the position switch of Jesus here. We read in chapter one that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, but he traded a glorious position to be made lower than the angels, to share in the flesh and blood of humanity, to share in true brotherhood with us. He shared our sufferings. He experienced temptation and brokenness. It says he was made like his brothers in every way even sharing the dreadful outcome of our broken lives, which is death. Jesus traded his glorious position for a position of suffering and death. He was made low. Why was he made low? He was made low to help us. Verse after verse, for nine verses, I see different expressions of how he helps us. He takes death for everyone, verse 9. He brings many sons and, and daughters to glory, verse 10. He becomes the perfect sacrifice for our sins when he died for us. He became the propitiation for us, verse 10 and verse 17. He is not ashamed to call us his family, verse 11. He destroys the one holding the power of death, verse 14. He frees those held in slavery all their lives by fear of death, verse 15. He's merciful and faithful with us, verse 17. He helps us when we are tempted, verse 18. He was made low to help us. That's a general idea of what this section is saying. Now let's dig deeper into that hourglass. What does this section specifically say about Jesus. I want to bring out a couple words for this section and just to help us organize, they all start with P to show how Jesus' character is displayed here. The first one is pioneer. God sent Jesus to pioneer our salvation. This is the process by which Jesus founded our salvation, as it says in the ESV. Did you catch that? Let's look together at verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. As you compare translations, you can see different iterations of the same word that give it a fuller description. The CSB says that Jesus was the source of salvation. The Amplified says author and founder of their salvation. The NIV is where we get the pioneer, the pioneer of salvation. The NKK NKJV says captain, oh captain, my captain. He's the captain of our salvation. And the NLT calls him the perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. Now I'm not Greek, but I did look up how this word was pronounced in the Blue Letter Bible app, but it still won't be pretty. It is archegos. Archegos, say it with me, and don't don't be all ladylike. Go, really, go for it. Ready? Archegos, the chief leader and prince is what it says this word means. One that takes the lead in anything and thus affords an example, a predecessor in a matter, a pioneer. Well, how does Jesus lead our salvation? Well, here's the second P, and we've already talked about it a little bit. By way of his position, he was made low. He led by sharing in suffering, tasting death for everyone, laying down his glory and taking up his cross. 
And therefore, he paves the way for us to leave the slavery of sin and death, to be a part of his family, to be sons and daughters of glory, alongside the radiance of glory himself. Because he traded his high position of glory, we can trade our low position for glory. Because he traded his high position of glory, we can trade our low position for glory. The third P is perfection. My question and your question might be, well, wasn't Jesus already perfect? Yes. But I want you to think of this process as becoming more complete. Jesus had to go through the process of being a man and being completely obedient when faced with suffering and temptation to not only be the perfect sacrifice, but also to be the perfect and merciful high priest. The next two Ps go together and they are Psalms and Prophets. He already quote, he or she, I keep catching myself, already quoted one Psalm that we talked about today, but there's another one in here. Psalm 22, 22, and it's quoted in Hebrews 2, 12, where it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. If you go back and read Psalm 22, which some of you might have done this week, you might have also seen the quote that Jesus made on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus became a brother to us, sharing suffering with us in every way, even to death on the cross. Jesus declared God's name to us, his brothers and sisters. The next P is prophets. And this connection is a little bit more subtle. You can see in Hebrews 2.13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. These are quotes from Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. Jesus is connecting with this prophet, Isaiah, and his position of leadership as one of a parent over children, leading by trusting first in the Father. So in both the Psalms and the prophets, Jesus is identifying as both the leader and the family with his people as brothers and next to the children of God. This is also a subtle nod to the fact that Jesus is the true and better king through David's Psalms and prophet through Isaiah. And the next P I want to bring up is propitiation. All Jesus's life and death led up to his being able to be the perfect propitiation for our sins. We find that word in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This word only occurs four times in the New Testament. So I encourage you to go to these other references and look up where it is used elsewhere. But for help in defining this, I look to a commentary, Hebrews for You by Michael Kruger. And he defined propitiation this way. Propitiation is a specific word which means that Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath against sin. It appeases God. Jesus is like a sponge which soaks up all the wrath of God so that there is no more left. 
At the cross, he was cursed with the curse we deserve. See Galatians 3:13. God is right to be angry at sin, but do you need to fear that anger? No, if you trust in Jesus, there is no anger left for you. It has been totally satisfied by Jesus' death. God's favor now rests on you and you do not need to be afraid. Amen. We do not have to fear God's anger because it has been satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And I love the analogy of the sponge because the author of Hebrews has just been talking about sanctification too. Sanctification is the process where we are made clean, where God cleans us up. Jesus soaks up all God's wrath like a sponge and then he cleans us up like a sponge cleans. So we are saved by Christ's sacrifice and we are also cleansed by his blood, changed by the power of his spirit. Every day we are changed to look more and act more like Christ. Which brings us to our last P, the one that we've been working up to this whole time and that is high priest. Jesus became the true and better, the best, most superior high priest who unlike former priests was perfect himself, who unlike former priests offered himself as the final sacrifice, who is faithful and merciful, who covers our sins with his blood, who leads us into life and life abundantly. So as we have been digging deeper into the details of this hourglass, what did we find as we dug? That Jesus pioneered our salvation, that he traded positions with us, that he became perfect in suffering, that he became the propitiation for our sins, so he could be the faithful and merciful high priest. Knowing this about Jesus, what does this mean for us now? Well, I believe we can have deep comfort and great confidence that Jesus sees and shares in our sufferings. We can de have deep comfort that we don't have to face the wrath of God, but can instead confidently approach someone who not only sees our suffering, but has shared it. Doesn't it make such a huge difference in your life when someone not only sees you and steps in to help, but also knows intimately what you are going through? Can't that person speak to you and for you and advocate for you the best? Think about any struggle or suffering you have faced in your life. Does it comfort you and help you when you talk to someone who has been through that very same thing? Christ was made like us in every respect. So he gets it because he lived it. This gives me great confidence. Jesus is my person. There, I couldn't help myself. I had to add one more P. Jesus is my person. If you can't remember anything else from this section, remember this one. Jesus is our person. Let's drive it home. Let's make it more personal. 
Jesus is your person. Let's get even more personal. Jesus is my person. Our last section is Jesus is greater than Moses. Let's pick Hebrews back up here in chapter 3 and read through verse 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house is more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Here is the big comparison for our session today, and it really is a big one for the original audience. Moses. Oh yeah, they went there. This is like saying Jesus is better than Galileo is to science. Jesus is better than Steve Jobs is to Apple. Or Jesus is better than Elmo is for children's television. You fill in the blank of whatever thing you are into. Jesus is better. Moses is this audience's hero. Moses was such a big deal because he delivered the people from slavery in Egypt. And God gave him the law, which was the old covenant way of faith that they were following. He was the pioneer of their faith in many ways. So it's no surprise that right after talk of Jesus being the pioneer, there is a discussion of Moses. In fact, in Deuteronomy, the end of the law books that Moses helped to write, this is written in Deuteronomy 30, 10 through 11. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the, then the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. For Jesus to one-up Moses, he must have been extremely special. When we look at that passage in Deuteronomy, why did it say Moses was so incredible? Well, he had intimacy with God. It says he knew the Lord face to face. He also did signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And when we compare to Moses, how does Jesus measure up to that? Did he too have intimacy with God? Absolutely. Jesus is God's son. This is an extremely intimate relationship. Did Jesus do signs and wonders? Yes, check out the Gospels. They are full of Jesus' signs and wonders. We also see Moses and Jesus sharing in their faithfulness. But there's a difference here. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. But what is really incredible about the comparison between Moses and Jesus is the great exodus both of them led. Moses led a great exodus of God's people from slavery in Egypt. 
Jesus also delivered his people from slavery, but this time it was a spiritual slavery, a slavery to sin and therefore death. And not just for the Israelites, but this exodus is for all people everywhere. Yes, I do believe all these ways make Jesus better than Moses. No offense, Moses. And when we get back to the book of Hebrews, the author is not dissing Moses either. It says that Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but to testify about what was to come. Christ was what was to come. All Moses's work was just a precursor to the true and better Moses, Jesus Christ. Just like John the Baptist and every other prophet that had gone before Jesus was testifying toward Christ's coming. Just like those Lego structures in Legoland, these prophets were but a shadow of the real thing. Jesus was the true design all along. Jesus made the blueprint. Jesus was the blueprint. This section exhorts the audience to think about perhaps the greatest leader they had ever experienced and think of Jesus as more glorious than that leader. If you were to think about the greatest leader in your life, who would it be? Would it be a parent or a grandparent? Maybe a great teacher or coach or college professor? How about a great boss or a youth leader, a pastor or a women's ministry leader? Now I want you to put all those leaders together in your mind and now realize, even with all of them put together, they are but a shadow of the perfect pioneer of our faith and salvation, Jesus Christ. All other leaders, no matter how great, will fail at some point. They are human. And even if they don't fail egregiously, their best Efforts are but a shadow of the glorious leadership of God's Son, the builder of the house. Did you catch that house metaphor? Let's talk about it a minute. Moses was faithful in giving instructions for the tabernacle and later the temple, which was where God dwelled to be with his people in the Old Testament. There has been much discussion of priests and prophets in this section and in Hebrews in general. In the Old Testament, only high priests were able to go into that most intimate space with God, the Holy of Holies. Yet, even in this position, they were still servants in God's house. Jesus is the great high priest, the better prophet, priest, and king. His position in God's house is different. Why? He's the son of God. In my house, my kids don't have to ask permission to crawl into my lap or to get into the refrigerator. Why? They're my kids. This house is for them, and we have a close relationship. It says Jesus has glory as the builder of the house as well, so as a son and as a builder. And that makes sense because remember what Joy said? He was in, with God creating in the beginning. Put in a way any fans of Fixer Upper would understand in every house that Joanna and Chip gains rehabs, who gets the credit for it? There might be a lot of people working on it, but they do. It's their vision and design that's the most glorious thing. Jesus gets the glory of the house because he's the builder of the house, the son of the house, 
more glory than any servant of the house. More on this dwelling or house theme in the Bible. When Christ came, came he tabernacled with us. In John 1.14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, instead of dwelling with him only in the temple, Christ came to dwell with us in flesh while he was here on earth. And what does Hebrews say is his house? We, we are his house. Hebrews 3, 6 says, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This idea is backed up in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, which says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? There is no more of an intimate space than within us. Jesus made this possible by inviting us into his family, by making us his dwelling place. Now he continues to get the glory as he builds up his house and as he gives us the incredible gift of sharing his intimacy with the Father. This final verse in this section, Hebrews 3, 6, goes back to the theme of endurance we see throughout the book of Hebrews as well. Let's read it. Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Hold on to the salvation Christ gives you and draw your strength from it. Even as you face trials, the walls of God's house stand firm. Nothing can shake the foundation of a house that God built. This house, I, you, we belong to God. Nothing can shake us when we are built by the most glorious builder of all time. So if I were to summarize this section into one main truth, it would be this. Look to glorious Jesus as the faithful head of the house and lean confidently on his awesome, unshakable leadership. Look to glorious Jesus as the faithful head of the house and lean confidently on his awesome, unshakable leadership. Where do we lean for our confidence? When things get shaky, where do you find yourself grasping? Do we view and honor Jesus as the builder and head of our lives? Or are we trying to build by ourselves? Let's honor Jesus. Let's give him the honor he is due and give him our full confidence. Let's pray and ask God to help us with that. God, thank you so much for sending Jesus to be our person. We repent for any ways that we have neglected, drifted away, or have not paid attention to your salvation in our lives. Help us not only to believe it, but embrace it in every moment. 
Father, thank you for all you've shown us about how you were made low to help us. Father, we praise you and thank you for the ultimate sacrifice you made on the cross, becoming the propitiation for our sins. Thank you for being the most compassionate high priest because you lived what we lived. You shared in our sufferings, Father, and you advocate for us, Jesus, before the Father. Thank you for building us into your house and dwelling within us. Thank you for inviting us into that intimacy, Lord. Help us not to shy away from it, but to lean on you fully, confidently for every hour of every day. Lord, we need you so much. Continue to show us each session as we move forward how you are better and help us to take it off the page and live it in our lives. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.